the reading of the Scriptures from Acts chapter 19, reading verses 8 to 12. I invite your uh, reverent hearing of God's Word and, and hearing in faith from Acts chapter 19. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I, uh, I know that most of you are not interested in uh, military history, particularly the subject of warfare, uh, but it's uh, interesting to see a number of parallels in the prosecution of uh, warfare in uh, the book of Acts. Not, of course, in a physical level with people being killed by bombs and tanks, but, uh, but simply the prosecution of the Word of God as it conquers hearts and minds, uh, as well as uh, doing something else uh, simultaneously, and that is prosecuting the judgment of God. And certainly, if you uh, ever interested in studying uh, history of warfare, one of the things you will learn is that uh, it's uh, very, very difficult, uh, in many cases, if not impossible, uh, for a nation to fight simultaneously on multiple fronts. Think, for example, Nazi Germany. I mean, the moment he invaded Russia, he's fighting on two fronts, and it just uh, perhaps uh, led to his defeat, notwithstanding the province of God. Um, and you can go on and on. I, I think, of course, the United States of America, we, we fought successfully and simultaneously in the Second World War, in the Pacific Theater as well as the European Theater. Very difficult thing to do. The providence of God, uh, He blessed us with victory. And that, that exact event, by the way, is occurring in the book of Acts, uh, because the Word of God is uh, simultaneously working salvation and judgment. Same time, working both. And as the teachers of God teach about the kingdom of God, God intervenes to act simultaneously to drive men and women to one side or the other, to salvation or judgment. And, and we're going to see this morning how He drives men and women to salvation. And, sad to say, He drives men and women to judgment. Simultaneously, uh, the power of the Word of God. Uh, so that the divine will is being achieved on multiple fronts. Gathering friends of the Gospel and driving away 
enemies of the gospel. Reminded of the beautiful text in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. Uh, God says, I've sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. Obviously a figure of speech. Meaning that the word of God is always successful. It never has to retreat. It never has to turn back and regroup. Because it's the Word of God. And uh, that is uh, in portion in our, in our text this morning. That the teachings of the Kingdom of God and the teachers of the Kingdom of God achieve the divine will on multiple fronts of salvation and judgment. Well, we're uh, geographically, we're in the city of Ephesus. Um, consistent with past ministry, Paul goes to the synagogue. I speculate as to the reason chiefly because they had a messianic expectation. He's there uh, three months speaking boldly while if you look at the text, verse 8, chapter 19, book of Acts, uh, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Reasoning and persuading them. So, uh, he is teaching uh, using persuasion and reason. Uh, it's very interesting, and I, I just draw your attention to this because I think it's so incredibly important. Uh, and that is that his practices are incredibly consistent. Uh, Paul never looks at culture and says to himself, you know, I, I need to adapt my uh, my message is to culture. No, he he engages in the consistent practices of uh, teaching the Word of God. He brings no new methods or techniques. Doesn't have to. Why is that? I mean, he was a man of his culture. I mean, he lived in a culture. It has its own challenges, its own pluses and minuses. Doesn't have to because. The Word of God has success irrespective of culture. I know some of you are parents and you're like me, you're deeply concerned about your children, uh, culture and uh, the means of culture, the internet and everything that's available. Well, simply use the means of the Scripture, pray, and uh, if you have occasion, preach the Word of God. Pray that they would be found in a place where the Word of God is faithfully taught because God will always use His Word. He does not have to study culture. He simply unleashes His Word and it will never turn back. Uh, There is the profound conviction that God will use that. Uh, There's also something that's very important here that we as Christians need to understand. Uh, If He is reasoning and teaching, it means that our minds process language and logic. Obviously, uh, depraved minds, uh, but uh, the fact that Paul is reasoning and teaching reminds us of the power of the means. That only God can intervene on a mind broken by sin. And that's the power of the Word of God. And that's the hope we as Christians should have in the 
singularity and uniqueness of the power of the Word of God. Yes, the people we, we teach and the people we share the Gospel with are depraved. Uh, their ability to use logic has been radically affected. But you know what? That doesn't stop the power of God. He can intervene at any point and at any time and manifest His will to either save or to judge. And so we pray, of course, uh, for God to save. Uh, and uh, that lesson should not be lost on, a, on us uh, because teachings and teachers will achieve the divine will. So in verse 8, what is Paul doing? Well, he's teaching, he's teaching the Word. Uh, persuading and reasoning them about the kingdom of God. Uh, and I remind you again, as I have on multiple occasions, I'm sorry I haven't kept uh, count, uh, but I trust it's uh, always novel to you. The content is an essential. Namely, uh, the kingdom of God. Let's look at a few texts in, in, in this regard. Um, Luke 17, 21. Uh, Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's present. Even in the midst of His enemies. Why is the kingdom of God present? Because He's the King. The King is present. Very familiar text to all of you, I'm sure. John chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom by the new birth. The power, the importance of the presence of the kingdom. Romans 14.17 For the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is that for us because we're children of the kingdom. Because we've we've been saved, it's it's life and joy and peace, uh, happiness, majesty, kingdom of God. Uh, we we can well imagine, and again, I'm speculating here. I remind you of my speculation. But if Paul is in the synagogue uh, speaking to them about messianic expectations, which I speculate that he is, then he is using. Great Messianic text from the Old Testament. My speculation, but I think it's reasonable to assume if he's proclaiming the king and the kingdom, then he's meeting Messianic expectation. And so I want to look this, mo this morning very quickly at a Messianic text as a reminder of something Paul might have been doing. Whether he did it or not, I simply don't know. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt in my mind that he was using Messianic texts. Let's turn uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, to Isaiah chapter 9. Because this is an illustration of a profound Messianic promise. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 to 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Uh, the prophet, or perhaps you're aware, is speaking of uh, profoundly uh, dark days. If you look at uh, back uh, the text and the context, uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 8 and uh, verse 22 is, is a reference to the context of this great messianic promise. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish and they'll be driven away into darkness. Obviously, it's an acknowledgement of judgment that's going to come upon them because of their idolatry, but the days were dark. And I think, what an incredible parallel to our own days. Sad days, dark days, difficult days, trying days. But uh, thankfully, they're not permanent, are they? If you look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. So Isaiah is telling the people, even though the days will be incredibly dark, uh, gloomy, full of peril and danger, the people are going to see a great light, and light will shine upon them. As a prelude to the great messianic promise of verses 6 and 7. Uh, as you know, both gospel writers have this text, namely Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, uh, being fulfilled by Jesus. But let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Just reminding you of the messianic expectation, also reminding you, or the gospel writers are reminding you of fulfillment uh, because of who Christ is. I'm going to read uh, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, in verses 14 uh, to 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. What Matthew is doing is alluding to Isaiah. Chapter 9, verse 2. He's speaking to people who saw Jesus, who He is, the eternal light of God breaking upon the gloomy darkness of the day. Now, I might remind you by way of application. Uh, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps some of you are gloomy for whatever reason, maybe the political scene, maybe the health scene. Um, you know, probably get worse before it gets better. Pardon my gloom, but uh, but we we have seen the living God in Jesus Christ. He's the eternal light that breaks upon us. He's really the only hope there is, uh, and and He's an ever-present hope. He's uh, light eternal, shines upon us. Greatness of the Majesty of God. Uh, Luke chapter one, uh, verse seventy-nine. Again, messianic fulfillment. Uh, let me read verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. No question and allusion to the prophet. And then notice the text, verse 79. To shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death 
and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So I don't care how gloomy it is. I know some of you fighting battles, difficult battles. We all are, by the way. But our Savior will lighten our path and guide our feet to the way of peace. So the prophet's, uh, prophet Isaiah is being fulfilled. He's the answer to darkness, Jesus is. Uh, by the way, you should use that as you talk to people. People are saying, oh, woe is me. He, he will guide us. He is our light. And I'm not unmindful of the terrible challenges of our, of our day. But I'm also mindful that we sit in darkness, but the light has shined upon us in the sunrise of heaven in the person of Christ. The world doesn't know that. We do. We should rejoice. And we should be mindful we have occasion to share that with a lost world. Well, the answer to darkness uh, is our Savior. The uh, writers of the Gospels tell us that in Messianic fulfillment. Uh, but returning to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, Isaiah engages the promise of the Messianic king in verse 6, and then the nature of his kingdom in verse 7. Just a beautiful Messianic text. The promise of the king is, uh, is in the verbs uh, born and given. Uh, Unto you a son will be born, a child will be given. God acting, God intervening. Uh, he doesn't fight with the darkness. He simply intervenes and light chases it away. Uh, so fulfillment is uh, certain because of the promise of heaven. A son will be given. A child will be born. And a child was born. A son was given. Uh, it's very important to me in terms of its personal interaction in our lives. Notice the prepositional phrase, to us, to you, a son was given, a child born. God intervenes in a person. Uh, furthermore, notice the progress in the gift. Uh, first it's a child, then a son, and then to King Messiah. Because uh, the child and the son are ultimately clothed in royalty and dignity, and government and dominion rest upon his shoulders. Uh, I was reminded this week, uh, simply reading the newspaper and catching the, the news, however you interpret it. Uh, I don't need to interpret it for you, but Certainly many, many people are profoundly gloomy. Uh, you and I know ultimately that dominion and government rest upon the shoulders of King Messiah. And He has come. And He has come to us. And He has gathered us to Himself. Great act of salvation. And the promise of the Gospel that a lot of people desperately need to hear. Because there's a lot of gloomy people in the United States of America who are sitting in darkness. Uh, because of his accomplishments, 
Isaiah gives us four compound titles attesting to His majesty. First, He is Wonderful Counselor. Uh, the adjective uh, wonderful is uh, used in a number of redemptive contexts. Uh, Isaiah 25, verse 1. O Lord, Thou art my God, I will exalt Thee, I will give thanks to Thy name, for Thou hast worked wonders. God's salvific acts are works of wonder. And then the prophet <laughs> appends these beautiful words. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. That's our Savior. It's wonderful. And nothing stops the plans of God. Uh, the redemption is beyond human ability, so there is a, a sense of incredible astonishment. Uh, you know, I think about coming to church. Uh, when, when you're absent, to me personally, when you're absent from church for any period of time, it's, to me that's kind of really gloomy. It's a wonderful thing to gather with God's people, to hear the wonders of God. His light breaking from heaven, the majesty of, uh, of our salvation. Um, Psalm, uh, uh, Psalm 77, uh, 11. The psalmist says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the wonders of old. Oh, great. We're going to church, sing a few hymns, sing a few prayers, hear the Word of God. Oh, the wonders of old. We were children of darkness. And God in His power made us children of light. That's our Savior. Wonderful uh, Counselor. Uh, but again, like the text says, uh, a child will be born to us. Uh, he is the counsel of God for us. Um, he has he's taught us and instructed us. Um, you know, in our theology, Christ is the great prophet because He teaches us the counsel of God. He unveils the glories of heaven for us as our teacher. Uh, if you want to look at a, at a text that I think beautifully speaks to this, just turn back to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11. In verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Of course, the Spirit rested upon Jesus. Transfiguration. Fulfilling these texts. For us. To us. I love John chapter 1, verse 18. That uh, Christ... Uh, exegeted God the Father for us. I mean, we could have never known Him because of our depravity. But God intervened. He's not bound by our depravity. He defeats it 
And he sends the Son who exegetes God the Father for us. The Son. That's our, that's our prophet, our great, great teacher. Second, he is mighty God. Uh, the word mighty speaks to a warrior victorious in battle. As you know, Christ is not just our prophet, he's king. He's king because he wins us and then he defeats all our enemies. Progress of time. He fights for us. He, he wins for us. I mean, the great text, Colossians 2.15, really speaks to, the, to really what this means to us as Christians. Because it speaks of the majesty of Christ as, as mighty God. The great warrior God. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So our king defeats and disarms our enemies. Uh, I mean, you should know in your theology that there was no way you could have ever come to Christ uh, because of the kingdom of darkness, all of its power arrayed against you. Christ simply came and disarmed them and triumphed over them and then won you to himself. That's power. That's a mighty God. It's our Savior. Thirdly, he's eternal Father. Uh, it's not really a misunderstanding of the Trinity. I, I take this as, uh, as uh, Christ is Father, if you will, of the spoils of battle. The Father of uh, booty, if you will. Mean that he distributes the spoils of victory as a father provides for and protects his sons. What an incredible person our Savior is. Uh, as, as our King, he protects us all the way to heaven, as you know. And, and I remind you because we need to catch the constant significance of this. Uh, his victory, his success is legendary. Simply remind you of the great text of John 6.39 where he says, of all those that the Father has given me, I lost none. Who can say that? Who can say that but our Savior? I mean, even the American victories of the Second World War, we lost many battles. Our, our king never loses. It's a wonder of our Savior. And lastly, He's the Prince of Peace. He brings prosperity and wholeness. He heals our fractured lives. It's the point of, of wholeness. We're broken. He fuses us back together. Uh, we need advice. We need a champion. We need blessings and wholeness. Christ is it. Uh, from King we turn to Kingdom. Uh, Isaiah 9, 7. There are no temporal or geographic limits to his rule. Uh, as you know, the angel Gabriel identifies Jesus uh, as, as, this, as this royalty. Uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 32 to 33. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
kingdom advancing, advancing because of the king. Um, and, and the promise is sealed with an eternal and certain cause. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Isaiah says, will accomplish that. That too is picked up uh, by uh, the writers of the Gospels. In the first cleansing of, of the temple, uh, John, John says, uh, and, 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 and the zeal of the Lord of hosts did it. Majesty of our Savior. Uh, I might uh, say to you, if you're not a Christian, you should, you should believe the word of the prophet Isaiah. He's the only light and hope in a, in a dark and gloomy world. Well, the word, as I suggested, in terms of acting simultaneously on multiple fronts, is going to accomplish uh, the divine will. Uh, and we see that in the response uh, of the word as it sifts men and women to two sides, one to salvation, one to judgment. Uh, one cause, two effects. Uh, meaning that it is successful uh, on both fronts, both salvation and judgment. Returning to Acts 19, verses 9 and 10. Uh, if you look at verse 9 of the 19th chapter, the book of Acts, but when some were becoming hardened and obedient and disobedient and speaking evil of the way before the multitude. Uh, so something happens in, in, uh, uh, those attending synagogue. They were hardened, begin to speak disobedient to the way. Uh, the way, as you know, reference to the restoration promises of uh, Isaiah. But let's let's look back at the result. What's the result of the word? Uh, the word of God is simultaneously always acting. It's never passive. Word is always active. In this case, it hardens. The hardening is a figure of speech indicating a judicial act of uh, damaging the ability to process information. That's a very difficult thought, but I don't know how you come away with any other interpretation than just that. Namely, it's an act of judgment. Because uh, the Word of God is always active. It's always accomplishing the end to which God sends it. Uh, it doesn't fall away with no effect, because it's the Word of God. And uh, here it hardens those who are attending synagogue. You know, very quickly the Jews worshipped their traditions. That really was their idol. Uh, but more importantly, the text is an allusion, as you know, to the Exodus narrative of the hardening of Pharaoh. If you want to study hardening, and it's mentioned in the New Testament, you really have to go back to the Exodus narratives of Exodus chapter 7 to 14. Because of time, I'm simply going to give you a synopsis. But behind my synopsis is a reminder of the power of the Word actively engaging Pharaoh, the great enemy of God's people. Uh, whether in the Old Testament or the New, namely the book of the Revelation. Uh, in Exodus chapter 7 to 14, there are 20 some references to hardening. 
Uh, ten have God as the subject. Two have Pharaoh as hardening himself. Uh, three are descriptive of just simply their spiritual estate. And very interesting, five have the explanation as the Lord had said. Meaning that God's Word is the agent. And that's the power of the Word. Things happen as the Word, as the Lord has said. So, um, if you, if you take what I said and you, you just simply look at the numbers, it's startling what the numbers reveal. But before we do that, let's, let's look at some of the uses because uh, I want you to process the text because that's how we form our theology. Uh, Exodus uh, chapter uh, 4 in uh, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Obviously, God is the subject and God is doing the acting. And uh, Pharaoh is being acted upon. Uh, by the way, uh, remind you, in uh, our text this morning, we read uh, that uh, the people were hardened. Uh, that's the passive voice. I am suggesting to you that God is the actor and they are being acted upon by the power of the Word to harden their hearts. And I think this text is very clear. God says, God says to Moses, I will harden his heart. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. People always say to me, well, Phil, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yeah, he did. And we're going to look at that in a moment. As the Lord had said. And he said it in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The power of God in His Word to act and to intervene on simultaneous fronts to save and to judge. Chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. That's the word of the Lord too. Pharaoh hardened his heart. So if you think about the numbers, and I'm sorry, we when you have your own time to study its usages in chapter 7 to 14, in my own distillation of the numbers, 73% of the uses have God causing the hardening. 10% have Pharaoh hardening himself. You process those numbers. I'm not doubting Pharaoh hardened himself. The point is causality. Both are true. God is the cause and Pharaoh is responsible. That's the text. I mean, I've had people tell me, well, Pharaoh was hardening his heart and that's why God hardened him. No, it's just the reverse. God hardened him and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Because God is the prime actor who acts first. Of course, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Because God was hardening him. And that's what's happening in the synagogue. Paul is speaking. God is using the Word. Their hearts were hardened. Uh, this is the point of 
of the, of the great text, very difficult text, as you know, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 9. Uh, Romans chapter 9 uh, in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. The Christian church need to re-understand or be reawakening to the majesty and the sovereignty of God. That he can act simultaneously on multiple fronts and his plans that have been formed from long ago will never turn back. Ironically, and I think this is the interpretive point, one of the interpretive points of the text is, uh, is the Jews in Paul's day are aligning themselves with Pharaoh, the enemy of God's people. And the greater irony is, is that uh, they reject Messiah because God has rejected them. We, we need to be reminded of God's judgment. People willy-nilly think, well, I can just uh, tiptoe through the tulips of life and uh, make my own way, and uh, if I want to choose God, I can, and if I want to select the timing that I can choose Him, I will, and if I don't, it's no big deal. There's many roads to the castle. My, have we forgotten God. But the apostles reconnect us to this great, awesome theology. And if you're troubled about it, which it's a very troubling event, just be reminded your heart was hardened and God invaded your heart. And the light shone upon your heart and he brought you to himself. He didn't have to arm wrestle with the darkness. He simply appeared. And uh, by the power of the Spirit, you believed. The divine presence, either to judge or to save. Um, Well, the second response in uh, Acts is, uh, is positive. Again, uh, the, the teachings and the teachers acting on multiple fronts uh, bring uh, blessing or cursing. Uh, initially, Paul withdraws, uh, but he withdraws and for two years teaches and reasons with the disciples in a local school. There, men come to hear the Word of God. Uh, I, mean, I will tell you if you're a Christian, and I, I trust in God's grace, all of you are, uh, you have a desire to know the Word of the Lord, and now you know why you have that desire, because He gave you that desire when He conquered your heart. Christians have an insatiable desire to learn to study read the Word of God. And uh, Paul is constant in the Word, because Paul knows that the divine presence breaks upon the teachers and the teachings of the kingdom of God. And you and I should know that. Yeah. The larger result, look at, look at Acts 19 verse, verse 10. Uh, and this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Obviously, it's a figure of speech. Uh, but, but just to reflect on the majesty of that all, all in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greeks. In other words, the word went forth. It's a reminder for us in our culture, what should we give ourselves to? Uh, should we uh, 
Should we adopt the means of culture? Should we uh, desperately trying to uh, keep our young people use youth culture? Oh, woe is me, what should we use? Well, use the Scripture. It works all the time. It never fails. It never has to turn back. In this case, it goes all over Asia. Many, many men and women, boys and girls, learned about the Word of God. That's, that's our calling at Grace Bible Church. Great calling it is. Uh, and it's the result. God simultaneously acting in a negative way in the synagogue and in positive as the Word goes forth and uh, people, people come to faith. Dual cause and effect continue throughout. And I remind you, continues throughout all of church history. What's the history of the church? God using the Word to gather His people. As well as simultaneously to reject. People need to understand, when they disbelieve, the wrath of God abides upon them. John 3.36 Abides is a present tense verb. Abides upon them. So you're not willy-nilly tiptoeing through the tulips, making your own way, singing my way. Uh, the power of God. Thankful that He's conquered my heart. I'm thankful that He's conquered your heart. And the light has uh, shone in darkness. And uh, the darkness could not stop it. <laughs> it's the beauty of the power of the light. Uh, I used to be on a dear lease... Uh, uh, up in uh, a little bit north of downtown Woodward, Oklahoma. Uh, the landowner had this tower, I don't know, 18, 20 feet in the air. I, I, I thought, surely that's 40 feet in the air, but uh, anyway, I'd climb up this tower. Man, to see the sunrise and the darkness retreats Think, well, there's some great battle. God's up there arm wrestling with Satan. Oh my, who's going to win? No. The darkness simply retreats when the sun rises. Uh, heaven has uh, risen in our hearts. Uh, darkness has uh, been in retreat. That's why you and I are children of joy. A reminder of uh, majesty of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Because the light has conquered our hearts. Uh, also in our text, very quickly, verses 11 and 12, uh, the presence uh, of God is with Paul. Uh, there's a reference to his uh, work clothes. Uh, perhaps a superstition of the culture, uh, but God uh, blesses uh, with, uh, with great healing. Handkerchiefs and aprons, uh, were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Uh, the point is God causes healing as well. Uh, the miracles are extraordinary. Uh, I remind you it's a forerunner of eternity. Um, that God will heal His people physically, spiritually, totally, absolutely, visibly and eternally and the Word will make it so. One of these days, we'll shed this broken body. And uh, healing will be complete. And uh, diseases will never enter the eternal 
estate. Thank God. Because of the power of our Savior. So, Christ is our King. Uh, the King uses His Word, His teachings, uh, to operate on multiple fronts, to gather His people, to reject and to bless His messengers who are the teachers, uh, having success on multiple fronts. In your new year, uh, be full of joy. Embrace the power of the Word. And uh, know that God will use it. And trust He will use it to affect salvation as He will. And uh, sadly, to remind people, it will also affect judgment. They should not be willy-nilly about the power of the Word of God. Uh, but that we uh, have come into that kingdom. We are light and joy and peace. And as we gather, it should uh, manifest itself uh, all the more. Uh, because we are light and joy and peace uh, by the grace of our Savior.